My name's Fritz Dale. So glad to be with you. My wife, Connie, over there in the nice orange shirt or tangerine, whatever that is. Um, and um, it was hot today, 90 degrees driving in here. How many of you had to work outside today? Okay. You have my permission just to fall asleep, crash. I'm not that good of a speaker. Man, it will wake you up, you know, when nine, nine balls being played or something like that. But 90 degrees, I thought maybe... I would wear shorts, but I, I've been called chicken legs and a few other things, so no public display of these, these legs. Ain't going to happen. So, um, We are in this wonderful series uh, called Real Relationships and talking about all the different types of relationships we are either in or someday might have. And tonight, I have the privilege and delight to talk to you about marriage. True love is what brought us here tonight. I love Princess Bride. Any Princess Bride fans? All right, we're there. How that movie never gets old, okay? Sorry, I just had to start there. Um, I want to begin by talking about um, some myths of marriage. And before I step into that, two things. The things I'm sharing tonight are things that Connie and I have talked through, wrestled through, learned, done well, done really poorly, those type of things. We're looking to the scriptures. So I just want to acknowledge when you're hearing my voice, you're really hearing our voice. Secondly, some of you are in like a catatonic state right now because you did not get a handout when you walked in. That is standard operating procedure. So while the cat's away, the mouse will play. Sam's going to probably send me emails saying, sorry, you'll get the handout a little later. So the things I'm sharing, like these seven myths, are on the handout. So those of you who say, oh, I've got to take notes, go ahead and do that. So let me walk through some myths about marriage. If you remember, last two weeks ago, Sam talked about dating, and he said dating is like what? Purgatory. That's a really encouraging thought, okay? <laughs> Let's be in purgatory. Now, he defined it as that in-between state. But here's the thing. If dating is purgatory, is marriage heaven? Men and women, that's a myth. I think marriage is somewhere between heaven and yeah. Yeah. H-E double hockey sticks. Bottom line is, marriage is awesome and it's ugly. It's good and it's bad. It's easy and it's hard. But this idea that marriage is just this blissful, wonderful heaven state, that's a myth. Here's my second uh, myth. I believe marriage will make me happy, whole, and complete. Man, I have heard that over the years from a whole lot of folks. If only I could marry, be married. If only could I have a soulmate. If I only had somebody who knew me deeply in a marriage relationship, I want to say something very strongly. Marriage doesn't necessarily complete you. You're, you bring wholeness to a marriage. And we'll talk about the wholeness that Jesus Christ provides. But you don't look to marriage to somehow make you complete or whole. That's what you possess and are growing in in this lifelong journey of being a person who wants to be mature and whole and complete. But marriage doesn't, in a sense, make you whole and complete. Yeah, there's some, there's some two becoming one, the wholeness there. 
But don't buy into that myth. Myth number three. When I get married, my marriage will be completely different from the marriage of my parents. Now, for some of us, we grew up in some pretty unhealthy homes. So I remember making more than one vow, one, more than one let's make a deal promise that I will never be like my father who had four wives, I've had four mothers, and what have you. I'm not saying that's a bad idea, particularly if you're coming out of an unhealthy family background, but I just have to be honest, you still bring you into the marriage. You still bring some of those things from your parents, both good and not so good. So the idea that I'm going to have a marriage completely different from my parents, ah, maybe it's going to be different. But to what degree? But the idea, I'm not going to make any of the same mistakes. I'm never going to get angry. I'm never going to get yell. I'm never going to touch the bottom. Nah, we're still human. So I think if that's true, there's the need to operate with some grace there. Myth number four. Things will get easier the longer you're married. And it doesn't work that way. I wish it would. You'd think the more experience, the more time, the more stupid lessons, marriage just has different seasons. And just when you figure out getting married, something comes along like children. And then you love being a parent, and kids are great, and then they become these weird creatures called adolescents. And then you're, you're married for, you know, you celebrate your 25th anniversary, and you're further down, and your parents start having health issues. My point is, marriage is a lifelong learning journey. And um, it's, it's not something that just gets easier with time. I think it gets deeper and richer, but I'm not certain it gets easier. Myth number five. One of the goals in marriage is to have a conflict-free marriage. Now, I grew up with a lot of fighting, and my dad was passive-aggressive, so every time my dad um, left, um, was in an argument, he would end the argument by walking away. So I'm a people pleaser. I want to make peace wherever I can go. So getting into marriage, I thought, oh, Jesus is going to help me be a really nice, kind man and husband, and we're never going to have any conflict, arguments, or fights. That's an unrealistic goal. In fact, I think you need to learn to fight well. You need to learn to fight fairly. You need to learn to fight as the scriptures talk about. So this idea of conflict-free relationship, that's a myth. By the way, that's true in dating, too. Myth number six. It's my kid's job to make me happy and my marriage healthy. Um, no, no. Um, I've seen homes and families like that where the parents are living through their kids. Some of you maybe have experienced that. But it is a myth that somehow my kids are going to just make me so happy. And they're going to make our marriage healthy. Kids complicate things. And one of the things that I've heard said is that the greatest gift you can give to your kids is a healthy, not perfect, healthy, growing marriage. That means, and this is a whole other conversation, that your kids don't become your center priority. 
You still have to keep one another important, growing, and, and working together and not be so absolutely drained and distracted by being super dad and super mom. I'll stop there. Last myth. In marriage, men and women have distinct and established roles. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, the role of the husband and the role of the wife, okay? That's a whole other conversation, and I'm going to touch into that in just a little bit. But it's the idea, who does the dishes? Who does the floors? Who does the laundry? Who's the best with money? Connie should be managing our finances. I manage our finances. And I can tell you some real war stories of being an idiot with our money. And, and my wife has shown me so much grace, so much of Jesus, because there's been times I've just made some really bad decisions with money. Connie is so much better of a shopper. She's so much better with directions. Do you know how humiliating that is as a man? Oh, I wasn't going to share this. Guys, give me a little space here. Three years ago, I got fired from barbecuing. <laughs> Connie is the master barbecuer. And she, you know why? I'm a little ADD, so we've got some really nice ribeyes. Okay, i got to do stuff in the garden. I don't time it six minutes on this side, this side. I'm using that as a bit of a facetiousness, but my point is... The idea that the woman and the wife is going to do only this things and this things in marriage, I don't think so. I think that's a myth. Okay? So now, I want to help lay a foundation and provide a toolbox for you. So I'm going to give you uh, some handouts, some stuffing. Table one. Thank you. Get those out there, please. And table two. These are some things that I've, we've thought through. Come on, get up, get that down, come on. You're going to beat that table over there. So as we share these tools for your toolbox, I just wanted to help give some understanding because I'm not going to spend a long time with these things because they're self-explanatory. So as you're getting those handouts, and you're going to get two, okay, so one is called the process of dating and marriage, and the other one is called understanding the foundation. Now, to introduce this, I love backpacking. And in June, I was with my grandson in the central mountains of Colorado near Buena Vista, if you know that, in what's called the Collegiate Peaks. Absolutely amazing. Seven 14,000-foot peaks that you can see as you enter the valley. It's really remarkable. And our goal was Clare Lake, a really 12,400-foot lake uh, with great fishing. Um, sidebar, I can tell you afterwards, we did make the lake for a couple reasons. Here's the point. We had a topographical map. And if you don't know what a topographical map is, it shows you that basically this sector of the mountains, um, it has contour lines that tell you elevation, and then it'll tell you where the streams are, and it will tell you where the hiking paths are. So for us, it was really helpful to have that topo as we hike seven miles to get to our camp, campsite, which 
We just made it where two streams came together. What I want to give you right now is what I would call sort of like a topographical map. Because as I talk to people in, in the church and outside the church and listen to people, it's the reasons for dating, the reasons for getting married, oh, I, I love him. We have great chemistry. I don't know. The Lord told me I should marry her. Those might be okay, but they seem a bit arbitrary in my book. So I wanted to just give you two simple tools to give some definition, a pathway, and what's called language, okay? So you're dating somebody, and someday you might be married to that person. What's going to happen between when you met that person in the last year, and maybe someday you're married? Now take a look at my diagram. And nothing, no rocket science here. Pool of humanity, all right? Just people out there. And you start coming to young adults. You play nine ball or whatever that's called. You go to the camp out. But you have common activities where you start meeting people. And then you start saying, hey, she's really, she's pretty cool. I, I really like talking to her. I like the way she interacts with others. In other words, within a group, you know, you're starting to get to know people. And then you say, I got to bite the bullet across the line. I'm going to ask her, I'm going to ask him out for a date. Now, this dates me. Going steady. I don't know if that term's used anymore. It's just the next step where you're saying, I'm committed to you, and, and we're going to begin working in this relationship to go a little deeper to get to know each other, but is going steady either short term or long-term. Connie and I, dated, this is terrible, but we were young. We met when I was a junior and she was a senior in high school. We dated five years before we got married. That's insane. I would never recommend that to anybody. But fortunately, A, we were in different states and different schools. B, I had to work through a whole lot of crap, my own personal crap and my crap toward the idea of women, marriage, commitment, dating because of how I grew up. Took a long time. I'm a slow learner. But now you move into courtship where conversation and the relationship is just getting much more serious. And you're talking and asking the big M questions. And then you step into what's called engagement. Okay, in our culture, engagement's usually a ring, a big hoopla, celebration, all that, but which is great. And then you see it come to this marriage point, and then marriage goes this way. I just, this is my idea of how you move through relationships. And you could, and by the way, you could have a whole lot of relationships in all these phases. And guess what? It is not a sin to break an engagement. Oh, is it painful? It's a thing I would never wish on anybody. But sometimes engagement reveals things that weren't revealed prior. So don't get this idea that, well, once I'm engaged, I'm. No, if the Lord just says, no, um, closes the door. Ah, oh, it's so hard, but that's okay. Go to the next document. Understanding the foundation. I'm not going to go through all these, but I want you to look at the left side. A signpost tells you where you're going. And so we just developed, Connie and I just developed this yes, no, positive or negative. And if you'll just take a moment and just read through some of those signposts in terms of common interests, communication compatibility, God's hand in leading, 
Those are some of those signposts. So as you're moving toward marriage, you've got something to even discuss and lay before the Lord. And this is not a single one-time conversation. We're able to say, how are we doing? I just saw so many people, Connie and I included, how do we know the Lord's leading us toward marriage? We think these signposts help. On the right side is a guy named Walter Trobish. He was actually an African missionary, and he wrote this, what they call a test to take. Love this as well. Okay? So those two things are so helpful to say, how is the Lord leading and affirming us toward marriage? Okay? So those are the two, two parts of the toolbox um, in terms of this map. How do I, ah, how's the Lord working and all that bit? Would you grab the document that says three stages of marriage? If you have a pen, I want you to write a word above marriage. Three stages of dating. Ooh. Let's see how this fits. So men and women, let's start with marriage. I was with a buddy today. Um, we were coming back from um, Wisconsin Rapids, and his anniversary is in two weeks for one year of marriage. And, and Brandon gave a, a pretty, pretty good report on marriage. They've had a great first year. I couldn't be more happy for him. My point is... The idea that marriage is sort of like this, just skyrocket, it just gets better and better. Oh, there's a love of my life and all that. But A, that's a myth. It's not realistic. But I really want to lay before you with a strong amount of conviction that there are, in a sense, stages of marriage. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is not linear. This cycles, cycles. So take a look. And by the way, you can see how this might apply to dating. Enchantment. Take a moment, just read through some of those words. Oh, he's bad, I love, she's the coolest. I, I. Okay, there's all these words that just say, it's the greatest thing that's happened to me. Okay, so you're on cloud nine, what have you. Then reality comes. And you experience some things that may move you into the disenchantment, and you can see the words. I, I, you know, we'll never make it. I'm bitter. I, it's not who I thought. But you just hit this place where you want to throw in the towel. And what's so important to hear, men and women, is that it's at this, it's at this disenchantment point that, that couples take the door, uh, the door out in divorce. Or in dating relationships, it's done because they don't know how to work through some of the pain and ugliness and messiness that's called being a human and being two people trying to make a relationship work. And also, we don't realize that this hard up-down cycle and road leads to maturity. And you can read some of the words there. And there's what I want to suggest that you just don't go through this this, these stages once. You cycle through them because life changes, you change, you move, you have kids, all those things in marriage. And some of you, and some of you who are dating in this room, you, when you leave and you're with your uh, significant other, say, what stage are we in? And, and, and if you see different stages, just talk through it, okay? So just, those are the stages. And it's so good to know that. 
I don't have to have this blissful, perfect type of marriage or dating relationship. Okay, the last document is a diagram, and here's where you will need your pens. And what I'm going to share with you is something that has been the game changer for Connie and I. And we call it God's triad. And obviously, as you can see on your diagram, it is a triangle. Now, do me a favor and write your name in one of the bottom lines of the triangle. Now, if you're not dating anybody or you just there's nobody in your life, just put a question mark there. I'm putting Connie. Now, you all can see, sort of? Okay. When you look at how the world does relationships, and some of this, oh, this person's going to make me whole and complete, the whole celebrity view of marriage and dating, all that stuff. Here's the problem, and this is the problem also for those who get married in the church. It is what I call a closed system. So if Fritz is looking at Takani to be whole, to meet my needs, to make me happy, to give me a sense of significance and worth, whatever I'm looking to her to do and be, last time I checked, Connie is not perfect. She has limitations. She has faults of her own. And my point is, she's going to disappoint me. And, and I'm going to find that this just doesn't work to varying degrees. And the same thing is Connie looks to me and says, oh, Fritz, you know, you need to be my best friend. You need to, you know, be my confidant. You need all the things that, all these expectations and things that we're asking. The problem is, men and women, this is a closed system because these are finite people. We are not infinite. We don't have the ability to love fully, 100%, forgive, understand. So what I want to suggest to you in this concept of the triad is that in marriage, I also think this works in dating, is that you really say, no, our relationship is not a closed system. It's an open system where God is at the top. Okay? Makes sense, but let me make that really come alive. And this is so important for you to hear. My first responsibility in my marriage is not to love Connie. Did you hear that? My first responsibility in my marriage is to love God and to seek God. So this is what it looks on the diagram. My first responsibility is to seek and look to God. So I'm going to put a number one. To God to meet my deepest needs, to heal me, to make me whole, and to give me the type of patience and all the things that I need for Connie, I'm saying, God, you're going to be my identity. You're going to be my worth. You're going to be my purpose. And as I look to the Lord, he then pours back into Fritz all the things that God gives that no other person, human, can give. And so I... I'm being made in the newness of God, 
Um, and the new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, and I'm becoming more like Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, as I make Christ my priority, he pours back and makes me more like himself. Watch this. I'm able now to love Connie with the love of God. I can forgive Connie because God's forgiven me. I can be patient toward Connie because God is so patient with me. And men and women, that's an open system. It means it's not all resting on me. And sadly, in the church today, I see so many relationships just this way. They're a house full of Christians. They're not a Christian home. Their relationship is not centered on God, and God is not the number one priority. So obviously you can see here, Connie seeks the Lord first, the Lord pours back into his, her life, and then she loves me as God would want her to love me and treat me. Game changer. And I never saw it growing up, and I see it so little in the church. That's why I'm so passionate about this. And, and don't make this overly complicated. You just say, God, you be the center. You be the anchor. I don't care what the apex, I don't care what you call it. But that's the triad that Connie and I have wrestled with. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3? Excuse me, Ecclesiastes 4. So Ecclesiastes, go to the middle of the Bible, you'll hit Psalms, and then you'll hit Proverbs, and then the book of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Maybe you've heard this, these verses. It's, it's the proof text. It's the foundation for this diagram. This triad. So, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Here it is. If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of what? How many strands? Three strands is what? Not quickly torn apart. So if you want to think of it as in the diagram there, here's the cord of Fritz, here's the cord of Connie, and here's the center cord of God woven together. A cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. To me, men and women, this is the essence of marriage. This is what helps marriage work. This is what helps a relation, marriage relationship be a lifelong relationship. So that's the triad. It's in Ecclesiastes 4. I love that. Now, you didn't know I had a third one. Ah, yes. Um, this is your handout for tonight with the myths. Okay, thank you so much. Now, Look at me for a moment, please. I'm going to T.O. us, okay? I feel like I've just overwhelmed you with those four handouts. And I sort of apologize. But I also said there are tool chests, part of your tools, to just make sense of this thing, dating marriage, okay? So I want to end by looking at two scripture verses very briefly, okay? And then I'm going to give you seven axioms um, statements that just are true, they're accepted in terms of this thing called marriage. So, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. 
And this is Paul's words uh, to the church in Ephesus. And we could spend multiple talks just on Ephesians 5, but I want to share a couple thoughts out of this passage that Connie and I believe are absolutely critical to marriage, okay? So, I'm in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to start with verse 21. Paul says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Continuing, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men and women, there is so much in there. It's so rich. It's not all easy to understand. I want to highlight two things. Often in the church, we talk about marriage in this passage by saying to the wives, you need to be sub- subject to your husbands. Okay? And that, that's a whole talk. What is submission? What is talk? Okay? And the husbands are to, to be the head of the marriage and the leader of the marriage. Okay? And that's, that's a whole other conversation. But here's the really important thing. You cannot overlook that verse 21 is what frames all of what Paul says past that in terms of his words to the wives and husbands. And what does it say? Look at verse 21 clearly, friends. Paul says, be subject to who? One another in the fear of Christ. So I have seen some really unhealthy and even toxic marriages where the husband thinks he's, he's the boss, he's the ruler, and all the wife does is serve him. She's just a doormat. And sometimes it even becomes abusive. That is not what this passage is saying. That's not what it means for wives to be, quote, submissive to their husbands. You start by being submissive, subjecting one, to one another. That means Connie and I, before Jesus... We're whole and we're equals. We have different roles, but we subject ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with, Connie, you you serve me, you submit to me, I'm the husband. 44 years of marriage, I've never played that card and said, well, you're the wife, you have to do what I have to say. I grew up with that. But this is what God's word says, be subject to one another. That changes the whole thing. second point and and that's this so wives are to be subject to their husbands what's the husband supposed to do ah husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and what gave himself up for her that means that my first responsibility is not to demand Connie following my leadership and serving me and and meeting all my needs. My first responsibility is I have to love this woman like Jesus loved the church. He died for the church. He sacrificed for the church. He was ridiculed for the church. For you men in this room, 
Your role is to be subject one another in the fear of Christ and to love and serve and be sacrificial to your wives. And what Connie says to me, when you love me that way, Fritz, I'll follow you anywhere. Wow. All right, that's enough on that bad boy. But boy, those two things on this submission and role of the husbands. I, don't, I almost didn't include this, but turn to Luke 20. And Sam touched on this a couple weeks ago. I just want to say this. Luke chapter 20. It's really a fascinating thing. Jesus is being baited. He's being tested here. Okay? Verse, starting in verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to the brother. So if the wife's husband dies, there's this responsibility in the Jewish way, culture, that the brother takes in the wife, marries her, and now the family. Let's follow on. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third took her. In the same way, the seven also died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Look at Jesus' words. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So on earth, in this age, we marry. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that's heaven, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. What? There's no marriage in heaven? When I was dating Connie, this passage scared the snot out of me. I said, let's get married tomorrow. I don't want to wait. I don't want to die and not have, be married to you. But bottom line, men and women, Jesus is saying that in heaven, in the new kingdom, we're not going to be married there's going to be such a higher state of, of relationship, such a higher existence that's so far greater than marriage that there's no marriage. As, take the greatest marriage, the greatest aspect of marriage, and being with God in his presence in heaven is so far better and describable. And what that tells me is marriage is great, Jesus is greater. And when I die, I want to die having had a great marriage, but I want to die following Jesus well. And that's the triad and all that bit. But I just want to put a little perspective, not a damper. Marriage is awesome. But men and women, if you don't stay close to Jesus and make following Jesus the number one pride in your life, chase marriage. But Jesus says there's something better, and I'm that better. Does that make sense? Wow. All right. Last thing, I'm, I'm going to run through these quickly. You've been very kind with me. So, number one, you do not need to be experts in marriage. You don't need to be experts. You don't need to have figured out everything about communication, conflict. 
Maybe not even experts with money. Connie and I certainly weren't. Can I say a rather risky thing? Okay, hear this well. You don't need to be experts in sex when you get married. It's a lifelong discovery, relationship, steps forward, steps back. We live in such a sex-saturated, so distorted culture. Men and women, don't buy into it. You don't need to be an expert. Number two, do everything you can to have premarital mentoring. Two words, premarital mentoring. Olden days, it was called counseling. I just can't encourage that enough. Find a church, find a, a mentoring couple that will walk you through it three to five times meeting, just talking about all these foundations about marriage. Number three, <laughs> it's not about you. <laughs> I have to be honest. I have never been more selfish, so much about Fritz than in marriage. I wish Jesus would just take an eraser and, and get self off of there. It is ugly sometimes how selfish I can be. So marriage is not about you. I think it's really more about the other. That's what it means to submit to one another. So just keep that in mind. Fight that battle well. This is an interesting one. Beware of excessive certainty when approaching marriage, i.e. dating, and in marriage. What do I mean by that? Excessive certainty is where you have to have every question answered, you have to be able, you have to figure out every problem, every challenge going on in your relationship. And this idea that somehow we can just make it work. And I just want to say we're human. And why do we need Jesus? Because we're frail, finite, fallen individuals. And I just need a whole lot of grace and, and patience with God and my wife and my relationship. For those of you dating, here's a really important thing. You don't have to have every question answered before you get married. It's called faith. Saying, we just sense God is just saying, we're leading you. I'm leading you here. You won't have every question answered, but I want you to begin this journey together. And I will end with this statement. There's this thing called mystery in marriage that is amazing. Our culture hates mystery because we want to tame it, predict it, control everything. We've got just, Siri, how do I deal with my wife when she didn't like what I bought today? No, come on. There's mystery in marriage. I love that. All right. Uh, this is fun. Play, pray plan. Play. I just want to encourage you in marriage, play together. So when Connie and I started dating, I taught her how to play tennis. We couldn't afford tennis courts indoors in Chicago so we, at $22 an hour, so we played racquetball. Six weeks ago, we, each, we bought fishing kayaks. We've been on the water three times, and we're having a ball, and we can't wait 
to fish off these, and we're, our next journeys into the Eau Claire River, a very small little nice tame section of the Eau Claire, because none of us have done much river kayaking. Play, pray together, and plan, dream together. Honor one another's, this is an interesting phrase, unique spiritualities. I have two sets of words here. Honor one another's unique spiritualities, worship language, and learning styles. Let me explain that real quickly. The idea that Connie is going to relate to and be spiritual in her relationship with Jesus, like me, I'm a fool. But can I tell you what a fool I was in the first couple years of marriage? She had to do her devotions just like me. I wanted her to pray like me. I was an idiot. I didn't value and understand this wonderful spiritual bent and uniqueness in her. The same thing in worship languages. In other words, sometimes I love the outdoors. I love to be active. Connie's a reader. She's incredibly smart and thinker. So she worships differently. It's just there's different ways, different worship languages. Cut each other some slack to say, I'm not going to compete with that or look down on that, but I'm going to value that. And the same thing with learning styles. I'm a hands-on kinetic learner. It, it, Connie actually reads the directions and how to put things together. That's a novel thought. All right, well, let's go, let's go, you know. That's how she learns. Here's the last statement. The top priority of marriage is holiness, not happiness. Holiness, not happiness. Wow. Thank you so much for letting me share our hearts and um, to be able to share a lot with you. So let me take a moment to pray and launch you into your small groups um, and, and let you discuss some of this. So Father, thank you that you're the author not only of our faith, but marriage is your idea. And it's not some, you know, oh, I don't know how to do it. There's some beautiful things in your word. This idea of a triad. This idea of submitting to one another and so much more. So thank you for the few things that I've shared tonight. God, would you take them and make sense of these things to my friends. Help them just pick up, pick up a few things that stick. And, and for those who are not even thinking of marriage, don't ever want to be married, okay, um, help them understand your view, your beautiful design. For those who are dating, some of this stuff applies. And for those who are married, help them just continue to walk with you and one another toward this thing called a marriage that reflects Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.